More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and, and postdoc fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by... Vic Kennison. Vic Kennison is a PhD student in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences, and they're here to talk about their research. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show tonight. Yeah, welcome. It's a very nice wintry mix we've got going on. Very wintry. Brings me back to the East Coast a little bit. Nope. I had to bust out my, uh, my snow thing to get the, all the snow off my car before I drove over. Yeah. Yeah. So very separate from snow, uh, you do very much beach and ocean things. Oh, <laughs> so, yes. I can't wait. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, your area of expertise. Um, well, there's my area of expertise, which is computer modeling. And then there's the season of fieldwork that I kind of got thrown into the deep end on last year, uh, where I got to learn all of the basics about capturing and satellite tagging male sea turtles in the water on boats, uh, doing nesting beach patrols with females, processing them, taking genetic samples, uh, processing little baby hatchlings and taking their skin samples and then releasing them. Uh, it was a lot. And I got to do it in a whole new language that I didn't know either. Wow. I, what language was that? Where, whereabouts was this taking place? Uh, Brazilian Portuguese. I was in a tiny little island about 300 kilometers off the coast of Brazil called Fernando de Noronha. It's a beautiful little island. It's paradise. The main road is about seven kilometers long. Wow. So you take a ferry over from the mainland, stuff like that? Oh, no, you got to take a plane. They've got their own little airport on the on the island. And then we should we should probably mention uh, you did say hatchlings, uh, but let's go a little bit deeper into maybe further in time of to what these little hatchlings turn into. Yeah. So a hatchling is just a baby sea turtle. So uh, should I start with the females when they're coming out of the water to lay their nests? Yeah, sure. let's go there. All right. So uh, we get to the beach every night around 8 p.m. and we patrol up and down. And what we're looking for are tracks. So we only have to patrol the beach about every hour. Sea turtles are big and beautiful and fast in the water. And they're very slow on land. Their flippers were not made for walking around and crawling. So they haul themselves out of the water and they'll spend anywhere from half an hour to six hours wandering around looking for a, a not too rocky spot on the beach and they'll start digging a nice uh we say fazenda cama in portuguese which means making the bed they're making like kind of a body pit for <laughs> themselves um and then that takes like 10 or 20 minutes they take some breaks it's pretty exhausting um they're moving a lot of sand with their flippers around 
And then they use their back flippers to dig a smaller chamber within this bigger cavity called an egg chamber, um, which is fun. So after you've been on the beach for a little while, you actually can start to distinguish what the turtle is doing based on hearing, um, which is good because we're operating by like moonlight and starlight. So on cloudy nights or if it's a new moon, you can't really see a whole lot. So you kind of have to be able to listen and figure out what the turtle is doing and where without scaring her away. Um, and then eventually when she's done building her egg chamber, if she hasn't found rocks yet, she'll just kind of start plopping eggs out. Uh, that's when we rush in to collect all the data, um, which I can talk about later. Uh, but in any case, once she's done, she'll start flinging sand around again to kind of uh, cover up the eggs and then leave a nice big pile. And then she goes back into the ocean, never to see her little baby hatchlings ever again. Um, inside the nest, they'll stay for about 50 days ish, depending on the weather. They go a little bit faster when it's warmer. Um, and then they wait for a temperature drop. So usually this happens at night. There's fewer predators around. They're slightly less likely to get eaten on their way to the water. Unfortunately, it also happens when it rains, which means we have to go check nest every single time it rains during the day as well. Um, but eventually, uh, enough of them start poking out of their eggs that when the temperature drops and there's enough of them, they start crawling their way out. And as some of them start crawling, it like starts dumping sand on the heads of the other ones. And they're like, oh, I should start crawling, too. And they kind of come out in this big wave all at the same time, which, again, is good. That way, if, if there is a predator around, you know, they're more likely to make it off into the ocean if their sisters <laughs> get eaten instead of them. Um, they make it into the water. If they can survive the first few years of life kind of floating around in the open ocean, they might come back and forage and start eating seagrass and things like that off the island. It'll be about 25 years before they can come back to start laying their own nest. It takes them a long time to mature. Um, and then hopefully they reproduce every somewhere between two and seven years until they die. Or they go through senescence at some point. We're not sure. So I think this is pretty fascinating about sea turtles that I did not really comprehend is, you know, I knew they grew old, right? And they had a very long lifespan, but their life cycle of not coming back to the beach to reproduce for, you know, the better part of my lifetime uh, <laughs> means that the work and research that you're doing today, you can kind of forecast forward and some of your computer modeling work, you're actively forecasting forward with IPCC reports. Um, before we get there, maybe let's rewind a smidge and Tell listeners, yeah, now obviously sea turtles are super cute, um, but why should we be studying sea turtles? What's what's their importance in kind of the ecosystem chain here, especially in Brazil, in this particular location? I think they have a special place for the people there. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, besides the cultural and the socioeconomic importance, you know, there's a lot of people that go to this. This is a tourist island. People are going to this island because it's paradise. They want to go to the beach. They want to scuba dive. They want to snorkel. They want to see the sea turtles here. There are entire tour groups dedicated around this one male who hangs around and feeds off of algae on like uh, in the rocky portion um, off the coast of the island. And he's super popular. He doesn't care that people are all around him. Like no one goes up to poke him or anything, but he just munches on his algae and he's got a nickname and everyone knows him and he swims around. Um, there's juveniles that hang around. There's like a boats that were sunk in the port. There's a gossip that it was for the insurance money. But anyway, there's two sunken <laughs> ships in the port and the juveniles love hanging around there and foraging. And so you can see uh, green turtles and hawksbills around there. So that's a really fun scuba diving spot, too. Um, it's a lot of ecotourism on the island in general. Um, in terms of the ecosystem, they tend to graze on seagrass. So they they chop down from the bottom from the top without like ripping out from the bottom. And that actually helps the seagrass grow a little faster and a little thicker. Mm -hmm. um, and the seagrass in and of itself is a super important habitat for baby fish, baby crabs, um, lots of little itty bitty things that live in the ocean that we love to eventually harvest and eat. Um, 
In the dunes also specifically, so unfortunately not all of the eggs will hatch in a nest. Um, a lot of them get left behind. Some of them weren't fertilized. Some of them, you know, got a little too baked in the sun or something like that. Uh, they're actually a super important source of nutrients for dune ecosystems, which otherwise do not have a lot of uh, in, uh, nutrient inputs. Wait, do Does that mean submerged dunes? Do, uh, no, dunes like on the beach, oh, like the big okay. hills of sand. So they actually affect the online ecosystem. Uh, oh, absolutely. The ecosystem. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm uh, I'm learning this uh, actively. <laughs> we we spoke to um, oh shucks, I, f- I forget her name now, but she's a dune ecologist. Uh, we spoke to her. Late. Rebecca Mostow. Yes, thank you. Rebecca. She's awesome. Uh, yeah, uh, that was a great interview. Um, but yeah, we we only talked about terrestrial systems, you know, above, and it's interesting that the sea turtles are are chewing on the seagrass, which is kind of a primary producer, which is the foundation ecosystem piece for many other little animals. So. Um, even so, sea turtles when they're older, they don't have many predators, right? Oh no! Once they're an adult, I, once they get taken down by a ship, they can get hunted by humans. Um, a shark will try to eat their flipper, but I've seen quite a few turtles uh, survive with only three out of four flippers, and they do just fine and can still swim a lot faster than we can. So, <laughs> but when they're babies, that's when they have many predators and biotic and abiotic. Oh yeah, in the nest they could be taken down by fungus too, but they can be eaten by there's invasive rats on the island. They've got these big old lizards called tejus. Uh crabs love to try to eat them. When they're scuttling across the sand, there's a lot of frigate birds uh, that would love to eat them if they can. Not a fan of frigate birds anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, birds. I don't know enough to know if I should be a fan of frigate birds or not. I mean they're kind of cool besides the fact that they eat my hatchlings. Okay. <laughs> so it sounds like they're a pretty integral part of this island ecosystem. Um but maybe there are some threats that they might be facing, um, and that's kind of the subject of, of your research. Do you want to get into that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, climate change. It's the big, the big C word out there that's affecting all the ecosystems and all the organisms. But it's snowing outside, don't you know? Oh, yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah, snow in November in Corvallis, that's super normal. Tell me how the climate isn't changing. That for, for our younger listeners, that's a reference to, I believe, James Inhofe. He was a senator who brought a snowball to the uh, floor of Congress and said, oh, how can climate change be real? Because there's snow. Um, yeah, that's what we're working with. Anyway, sorry. S- uh, brief tangent. Um, so, yeah, climate remember change. Remember to vote. Yeah. Or, oh, you know what? <laughs> yes. For goodness sake, remember to vote on Tuesday. Uh, Oregon has vote by mail, too. Super easy. You can drop it off the ballot box. The ballot box uh, is outside of Reser. They no longer have a ballot box inside of the library, but there is one outside of Reser and I believe at the l- uh, the county courthouse downtown. One at the Winco Plaza, too. Oh, there is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a bank that's right there that they they have it okay so please go vote my goodness please go vote oh gosh please go vote (laughs) okay so climate change kind of a thing it is so there's lots of different ways that that can affect sea turtles um so there's you know lots more cyclones that are increasing in frequency and severity that are kind of damaging seagrass beds and beaches where they need to nest and things like that moving islands around in general um there's actually a portion of our beach that just kind of shifts around every few years um and so there's one part that uh gets submerged with water during high tide now that didn't used to. So sometimes we actually have to relocate nests to make sure that they actually make it to the hatching portion. Um, But really the biggest thing that's coming that hasn't really been explored quite as much as the other threats is this rising temperature on the nesting beach. So sea turtles are really cool in that they don't have sex chromosomes like humans do. They don't have, you know, X's and Y's that turn them into males or females. Uh, They have temperature dependent sex determination. 
So while they're incubating in the nest, uh, during that middle third period of incubation, the temperature is going to determine whether most of the hatchlings that come out of that nest are going to be male or female. And as climate change progresses, there's a lot of nesting beaches around the world, especially mine, which is about three degrees south of the equator. So it gets pretty toasty. We're just... You know, 90% to 100% of the hatchlings that are coming out of these beaches in the entire season are coming out female. And we Wait, haven't seen... Yeah, how many percent? 90 to 100% probably. Wow. Yeah, the hatching season goes for six months, so there's definitely some hope that there are some males coming out like in the earlier part of the season in December before it starts getting too toasty down there. But um, as you get later on into the, the nesting season, it's definitely almost assuredly 90 to 100% females popping out. So what's the window of temperature that you would expect in a nest and how hot is it getting and how does that switch from mostly males mostly females some kind of mix yeah so sea turtles are specifically like type 1a temperature sex dependent or uh, essentially that means that cooler nests produce males uh there's about a 50 50 ratio around 29 degrees for most sea turtle species i think for my population the closest one we found is like 29.2 degrees celsius but it's a little different for all of them of course and that's 84 degrees fahrenheit for for us imperial listeners (laughs) what's that for um and then there's usually about a range of one to two degrees it's pretty small around which there's variation in the proportion of males and females and then once you get above that it's just 100 percent females all the time and then there's the added threat of once it hits above 35 degrees celsius for more than a few days then they're just they're all dead it doesn't really matter if they're all female or male they're just not coming out at all so the 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 two degree threshold for, for uh for celsius between like 29 to 31 that comes out to 84 degrees fahrenheit to 87 oh but 29 is in the middle so it's got to go from like 28 to like 30 ish is where you're going to see some variation Mm -hmm. so it's a pretty narrow band we're working with here very for some populations it's only one degrees is that whole band and anything above that is just all females so as it gets warmer Mm -hmm. many more females many fewer if any males yeah and there's definitely a lot of nests that are hitting over that 30 31 degrees celsius for a lot of that incubation time and so do we have a sense of the historical breakdown in population for the rates of males and females, maybe when temperatures were lower? We do for some. Um, sea turtle species have actually made it through periods of um, whatever uh, glacial ice ages and then warmings that happened between them, and they have survived. Um, so this is something that they normally could absolutely adapt to and survive over time. What they've never seen before is the rate at which the temperature mm. is increasing. When you have a generation time that's at least 25 years, it takes so long to be able to actually, you know, uh, spread any mutation, helpful mutations around to the population to, to ensure that you survive. And on the time scales we're looking at, it's it's not looking super great. This is why we use fruit flies to do a lot of research, because fruit flies, their generation time is like, I think, hours. <laughs> yeah, so we that can like see right. how their genetics change very quickly. But for a life cycle of 25 years before they come back to the nest, even just to lay eggs. Whew, boy. Yeah. And so, you know, say you have this one individual turtle that had this little mutation. It's got a 0.1% chance of actually surviving those 25 years and coming back to reproduce. And so you have to have a lot of these very helpful mutations kind of popping up at once for a chance for one of them to actually survive and start breeding and start passing it along to the next generation. And I'm sure that uh, that dynamic of a long generation time also makes it study to track these changes over time, right? Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of papers that are looking at populations in Hawaii and Australia, and they're like, oh, you know, the sex ratio difference in adults really isn't that bad. And it's like, well, wait 20 years and we'll see how it looks once you've got, you know, 90% female hatchlings being pumped out for 20 years. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully there's some sort of differential survival rate where maybe males are able to survive 
somehow more and make it to the adult stage, but no one's found any sort of evidence for that yet. And uh, I, I do want to get to some more hopeful items because we did discuss uh, some ways that humans can try and manage these populations, uh, practical and maybe more hopeful. But there are some very, uh, very real things that, that we can do to kind of help them along. Before we get there, I think it's really cool to go back to your field work. And you mentioned uh, you're collecting data. Can we put put our, our listeners back onto the beach? It's dark. You're listening very carefully for the different sounds of what these turtles are doing when they make their um, their egg. Uh, their body cavity and then their egg chamber. Egg chamber. Yeah, so w- what do you do as researchers? Oh, when, my gosh, yeah, no, this is, this is the best. I actually spent my birthday on the sand watching a female dig a nest while like this huge shooting star came like right down. Oh, I, yeah, I was like, this is it. My life has peaked. Um, my collaborator rightfully pointed out on Twitter when I tweeted this later. No, 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 wait, Vic, hold on. There's going to be hatchlings in a few weeks. And that's when my life peaked. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we spent our nights, you know, walking around on the beach barefoot. Um, if we see a turtle coming, we just kind of sit and we wait and we watch. Um, there's this very distinctive thwapping sound when they're using their front flippers to like really slap the sand out of the way when they're digging. And then when that stops, um, usually there's enough starlight or moonlight that you can kind of see their their shell is kind of like dancing back and forth really slowly as they're using their back flippers to dig that even deeper egg chamber. And then she'll take breaks every once in a while and I'll sit there and I'll time it. And if the break lasts longer than 30 seconds, I'm like, okay. And then I kind of crawl up and I wait another few seconds. And if she's still not doing anything, then I take my headlamp off and I shine it like real close to her butt so she can't see it uh, just to try to see if eggs are starting to come out. Because once she starts laying eggs, we've got like 10 or 15 minutes max to run up and collect as much data as we can before she starts thwapping sand all over the place again. And they're in hypnosis when they're laying eggs? Yeah. So they just kind of like stop responding to any external stimuli. So we're measuring the carapace with a tape measure. We're um, using nail polish on the carapace to kind of write a number so we can identify them from a distance. We're checking their flipper tags. We're adding a flipper tag if they're missing one. Um We're taking a little skin sample off the neck for genetic analyses. We're sticking a temperature logger into the nest about halfway through that's tied to a stake that we use so we can find the nest again later when we need to put a cage over it. There's a lot of things going on. It sounds like this requires like such a mix of patience and then snapping into action. Oh, yes. I spent a lot of time on my phone doing Sudoku on the beach waiting for a turtle to stop (laughs) wandering around and start digging a third body cavity or finally, you know, start laying an egg chamber or something. A lot of rocks on the beach, unfortunately. And some turtles, sometimes you can tell, you know, if she's like a smaller female, she's not super robust. She's wandering around. She doesn't really know where to dig. The first time layers, you can kind of tell a little bit. They're like, oh, she's going to struggle to find a good spot. It's rough. Yeah. You're like, oh, first time mom. Oh, yeah. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they haven't quite learned the ropes yet. I'm wondering, um, so you talk about the the temperature range. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there's probably some variation in what the the nests look like maybe like how big the the mother turtle is are you able to look at any variations in how they construct it uh we have the data for that i don't know if anyone's has started to try finding just trying to figure out if there's any sort of correlation between like the carapace length or the width and then the number of eggs that are coming out um and remind us what the carapace is oh sorry the carapace is just the shell on the back which is a fancy word for turtles i guess just the shell that's where uh, Nemo rode on the yes. That's where he rode on current. the crush. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that that very famous male that eats algae. I'm surprised they didn't name him Crush, but maybe he was around before Crush was was a thing in Finding Nemo. Uh, when did Finding Nemo come out? 
blank 2006, stairs. I don't know, something like that. Oh, yeah. This, uh, this guy was definitely older than that then. <laughs> Come on, maybe, we just talked about the long generation Yeah, times. maybe before Disney. Although Disney's <laughs> kind of OG. <laughs> okay, so um, back, to, back to the field work. How many people are out there with you? Um, on a slow night, just two of us. And oh, so wow. if there's more than one turtle, that means we're like kind of running back and forth and like trading supplies and like trying to figure out whose turtle is doing what. We have radios also. We don't need to be running as much. Um, we only have two radios though, so when there's more of us. Someone's usually running around. It's me. It's usually me. Um, I think there was one night there were five of us on the beach. And thank goodness, because we had eight. Diff- we had eight turtles come up five there were five individual turtles. So a couple of them like came out, they like met some rocks. They were like, nah, I'm out of here. And then left and then like came back later. We had to process 96 hatchlings out of two nests that came out. And then we had to relocate one nest. So like with five people, that means usually uh, we've got like this little beach hut. Um, uh, Progetto Tamar has their little field house there that they allow us to use when we're doing the, the patrolling. And, then, uh, and there's Progetto like a tomorrow is. Oh, sorry. And Progetto tomorrow is the nonprofit that we collaborate with. So it's their island. It's their, you know, uh, their turtles that they're working with on their island. And we're kind of using a lot of their field equipment and we're using a lot of protocols that they've designed for these kinds of uh, patrols and processing of hatchlings and females and things like that. We'll return. We'll return to them about the solutions because they're pretty integral in that. Absolutely. Yeah, and so they have this little field site, and it's just kind of like a little hut. It's got some posts in the front for a hammock. There's room inside kind of for, like, two air mattresses. And so usually we'll, like, take turns patrolling. So if, you know, you walk up and down, it's a half a kilometer beach, so it takes you, like, 20 minutes to walk up and down the whole thing and come back. And if there's no turtles, that means you all get to, like, chill for an hour. So we try to, you know, catch some sleep at some point while we're out there. That night, no one got any sleep. <laughs> there are some there are some long nights. Well so- worth it, though. Oh, Absolutely. So you all are there as researchers, um, and then this nonprofit, uh, maybe it has a like a conservation focus. Um, what is kind of the breakdown between how you you balance those objectives? Like, how are you disturbing the um, the nest for research purposes versus mm-hmm. for you know ensuring that these hatchlings have the best shot? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's a great question. So Projeto Tamar, which uh, stands for Projeto Tataruga Marinha, which is uh, Brazilian for Project Marine Turtle, um, started in the 1980s. Uh, They're all over Brazil. They've got a bunch of stations everywhere. They're working to help conserve and protect all seven species of sea turtles that they see off the shores of Brazil. Um, They're really great at, you know, kind of moving into community and helping to establish research and collecting data on species and also uh, providing jobs and resources for folks whose uh, income was based maybe on sea turtle poaching or something to do with the sea turtle lifestyle. They're really great at integrating them into ecotourism or into the shops um, that they use to to fundraise a lot to make money for to help pay for a lot of the conservation and, and preservation work that they're doing. They do do a lot of research themselves, but not quite to the extent that we're doing when we come in, just because we have the the time and the manpower and the resources to kind of do this. Um, Armando is actually a Ph.D., in Dr. Mariana Fuentes' lab at Florida State University. And he actually worked with Projeto Tamar for 20 years. So he's a native Brazilian. He's actually worked on this island for 10 years um, before he came to the States for his uh, PhD. And so he knows these turtles. He knows the people on the island. We, we joke around. You know, we walk down the street. We're like, hey, Armando, do you know that musician who's playing at that restaurant right there? He goes, oh, yeah, I know that guy. We go way back. He just he knows everyone. <laughs> um, and so he was like trained, you know, by Tamar to work with these sea turtles. And that's how he knows so much about them. 
Um, we're using their office. We're doing we're having meetings with them every week where we're presenting to them what research we're doing. And they're asking us questions about, you know, why we're collecting this data, what we're going to use it for and stuff like that. So there's a lot of communication um, as far as how they actually direct what we're doing with everything. I'm not entirely sure how much of that comes from the principal investigators on the project versus Progetto Tamar leadership and things like that. There's definitely a lot of collaboration, but I don't know exactly where that line goes. And you mentioned the principal investigators. I don't think we've uh, mentioned your advisor yet. So that's Professor Will. Dr. Will White. Dr. Will White. Um, and you have worked with them for your whole PhD, correct? Yeah. Yes. I actually came out here to work with him on my master's. Uh, which was a whole fisheries thing with MPAs. Um, and then I was actually not going to do a PhD, and he was offered a collaboration on this project, and he was like, hey, Vic, I know you like sea turtles. If you would like to be my PhD student on this project, you get dibs. And I was like, oh, man, I was, I was ready to quit academia. I was going to go into environmental education. And I was like, okay, wait, oh, hold on. I like this advisor. He's really great. Like This project comes with three years of funding, and I get to work with freaking sea turtles. So here I am, three years into my PhD, no regrets yet. So that uh, you started here at Oregon State on a master's degree, uh, but it was doing fish, fishy things, fishy things. Yeah. Fish so things. doing a management strategy evaluation. So essentially I was just doing population dynamics, but for fish, uh, figuring out how different kinds of harvest rules uh, could incorporate information from inside a marine reserve to help inform fisheries management when there's not a huge amount of catch and abundance data. Um, the way that we usually manage like our much bigger commercial fisheries using this massive model called stock synthesis three. This might be a good time to transition into the modeling, math, com uh, computer side of things because uh, you didn't come to Oregon State thinking you were going to do sea turtle stuff, right? But you did have a marine biology and computer science background or a math background? Computational maths, yeah. Okay. Now, how the heck do you get into both of those things together? Because they seem <laughs> very different. Um, well, we're going to start way back with my third grade teacher, Mrs. O'Connor, who got me into math. I loved her so much. Um, and then I kind of gave up on math a little bit. I got to high school and I learned that biology was a thing that exists. And I was like, this is so freaking cool. Like, this makes sense. Like, I love learning more about how the world works. It made a lot of sense to me. And when I was applying to undergrads, I was like, OK, Let's go for marine biology because biology is cool and I love the ocean. So marine biology is obviously like the coolest biology there is. <laughs> um, and so I went to University of Massachusetts Dartmouth for marine biology. And there was some rude person on the stage at orientation who made some sort of joke about how he did calculus three as a freshman and that no one in the audience would, would be able to do that. And so oh. I went home. I went to my room right after that and I signed up for calc three. <laughs> And then I just kind of kept taking courses and I was like, well, I guess I might as well make it a major. So these courses count for something. Um, and so I became a double major in computational math and marine biology. And luckily, uh, Dr. Kim, who's the head of the math department, was very kind and very uh helpful and helped me um, kind of work around the different courses that I need to take for my math major, because obviously sometimes they conflicted with the courses I needed to take for my biology major. So I took some courses out of order. I took some like grad level courses to get undergrad courses out of the way. It was it was a lot, but she was wonderful. And so I was actually able to graduate in four years with both of those. Um, yeah, it was mm, anyway. <laughs> and then probably the most influential part of that was my sophomore year. Um, I had a faculty mentor who encouraged me to apply for this workshop that was hosted by NOAA down at the University of Florida. And um, what is NOAA? NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. 
I'm pretty sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And they were hosting this like week long workshop. You have to like apply to be in this workshop. And there's like 15 people from across the country that were accepted to this. I actually had my first panic attack while applying to this program, but it was worth it because I got in. (laughs) Um, And it's the Marine Resources and Population Dynamics Workshop. And so you go down and there's TAs and you do um, an otolith dissection out of a fish and you do a mock town hall where you talk about the socioeconomic implications of different kinds of management of marine resources. And we went fishing and we talked, uh, we learned how to use you know, Excel spreadsheets to mimic simple population dynamics and how that's used to regulate things like a lobster fishery or something like that. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can use math and biology to work on things to help save the ocean. I was like, this is it, I'm sold. So was that the moment when you knew that you wanted to eventually go to grad school or? (sighs) Yes, pretty much. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You you had to figure it all out at once. Yeah, uh, you you had a deflated sound, but is that because you knew it was going to be many, many more moons of school? Um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and we should probably get into how you're using your math background now in your current research. Yeah, so a lot of population dynamics modeling, we use a lot of linear algebra, so we're using a lot of matrices um, where we just have uh, numbers at ages. So I have like my little hypothetical sea turtle population where, you know, each female is you know, a number in a box in this matrix where I have rows for ages and numbers and columns. And then there's one for males and one for females. And then there's a whole set of them for different scenarios and things like that. But anyway, using very large nth dimensional matrices. Um, And then we're also trying to model the stochasticity of nature. So like there is, you know, not every single hatchling is going to switch from male to female at the same temperature. Um, every female is not going to lay the same number of clutches or nests. Not each nest is going to have the same number of eggs. Each nest is not going to have the same, you know, level of hatching success and things like that. So these are all things that have variation in nature. And so I have to try to find the statistical distributions that kind of models that most accurately and then pull from that for all these different simulations. And so it's a lot of, OK, how do I average these things? How do I figure out what like. Uh, what to pull out at the end to kind of represent what the overall results are. What do I care about comparing and things like that. And so are you developing these methods um, sort of from scratch for this type of study or is it, is there a general way of doing these quantitative methods for population dynamics that you're extending? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of it is general things that are applied in a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of putting them into a new formation, I guess. Um, I'm very lucky in that some of the early statistical things I'm trying to do, like relate uh, the sand temperature to air and water temperature. So I want to project into the future, right? But unfortunately, I don't have any projections for future sand temperature. But the IPCC report does give me future air and water temperatures. And so I'm going to try to use that to predict what the nest temperatures are going to be. And so it's, you know, figuring out which kind of model to use and how that's going to work with my data and things like that. But fortunately, um, my... One of the PIs, Dr. Mariana Fuentes, has a collaborator who's done a lot of this code already, and so he's actually sent that over, and so I'm trying to format my data so that I can run through all that stuff. So it is definitely a lot of, it's a big team project. There's a lot of help coming in from other places. And how this connects to the field work is that sort of the columns maybe in in these matrices are coming from things that you collect on those nights, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to format the data from this population as much as I can to be put into these. Unfortunately, we don't have all of the data. We don't have like survival rates for hatchlings or adults in this population. We do have to steal some things from other populations of sea turtles. But for the most part, we're using the data that we're gathering um, from the males, the females, the hatchlings as much as we can to inform the model so that the results are most directly applicable to our population for now. And as I understand, the thing that you are maybe most interested in is 
the question we alluded to earlier of the the sex imbalance and the consequences for the population in the future. Yeah. So given different, you know, climate mitigation scenarios from, you know, suddenly there's a major scientific breakthrough and all the governments care about reducing climate change and all that stuff down to the, you know, the most extreme scenario where nothing is mitigated and we let everything run rampant. You know, those give us different projections for how the nest temperatures are going to change given those kinds of things. And then also given different kinds of male breeding behavior. So we don't know this yet, but, you know, maybe males will mate with more females or maybe they'll mate more often. Um, How does that affect uh, whether or not this population is going to survive in the long term. That's kind of what I'm looking at out to the year 2100, looking at all these different scenarios and seeing how it affects uh, the probability of population persistence or the probability that it won't go extinct. And then between today and 2100, let's go back to uh, the organization you're working with and some of the practical things you're doing on the ground in terms of solutions for today. Um, so for now, the only thing we are doing is relocating those nests that might get flooded. There is definitely a lot of talk in the scientific literature for ways. What, well, first of all, there's talk about whether or not we should be artificially influencing survival of sea turtles, right? Because if we're helping them survive, we're technically helping to select against we're helping to select for individuals that might not have survived on their own. And therefore, we're kind of, you know, helping them not evolve over time. And so they're never going to get themselves out of it. Um but leaving that aside for now, there's definitely lots of things we can do to cool down nest temperatures to get, try to get more males. Uh, if we leave them in the beaches, you can plant more vegetation that provides shade. You can sprinkle water on the nest uh, to reduce the temperature. Um, if you don't want to leave them on the beach, you can transport them to a lab where you, or somewhere where you can control the temperature yourself to in, ensure that there will be more males coming out of it. You could preferentially protect nests on the beach that were laid earlier in the season that might have more male hatchlings if you could only protect a certain amount of the uh, nests, for example, things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask about the sort of possibility of captivity or breeding in captivity, because I know that's, that's something that's happened with other species. Is there something that makes that difficult with sea turtles? Um, Mostly it's neat having the resources for it. And again, the whole like, are we helping, you know, select against four genetic advantages or, or anything like that. Um, it's called head starting where you raise them for the first year of their life, which they were probably only going to survive. 35% of them were probably only going to survive that first year. And so if you can ensure that a lot more of them survive in that first year, uh, once they get, you know, slightly big enough, they're a lot less likely to get eaten by other things out in the ocean. And so that can give them huge, uh, benefits in terms of that. Um, I think, yeah, mostly that requires space for them, food for them, veterinary care for them. Um, enough space that they're not going to spread too many diseases between each other if one of them gets sick, stuff like that. Band power. (laughs) Tricky, tricky. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think we're coming close to the end of the show. Joseph, do you have any more questions? Um, Yeah, I was going to ask about, you had mentioned some of your other interests here on campus. Um, We already already plugged um, voting season, but then you also have you work with uh, the union here. You want to tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, I work with CGE, the Coalition for Graduate Employees, which represents all the grads here at OSU. We do things like get a better contract, which gives us things like cost of living adjustments or salary raises. Uh, We have a lot more money in the hardship, the OSU hardship fund for this year. Last year, they didn't even give away all $50,000 they had in that. This year, they've got $125,000. So anyone who's struggling with anything that they need to pay for, groceries, rent, child care is something that was added recently. If you're struggling with child care, you can apply to this fund to help cover those costs. You can only get $1,500 for the year, but you can apply for some smaller increments or all at once. Highly recommend anyone applying to that if they need it because, you know, hopefully OSU doesn't take away some of that money if we don't use it all. So use it all. 
and uh, to find more information, you can go to CGE's website. It's www.cge6069.org. Uh, and there's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really well done website, which um, it always used to look a little funky, but it's really good now. Uh, I should also mention, uh, I am, for listeners that don't know, I recently got ankle surgery, so I'm sitting here with like a boot on my foot. But the only reason I was able to get ankle surgery and like a bunch of MRIs and like figure out what was wrong is because we have healthcare through our union. And we have really good healthcare through our union. Um, so thank you to all past and present CGE members who uh, fought for, you know, better working conditions uh, for all of us because then we can actually concentrate on science and the research that we're paid to do. You're here. Yeah, I love working with sea turtles, but I'm also doing like 16 hours a day of like a lot of manual labor, like six days a week the entire time I'm there. And, you know, sometimes that means brushing out uh, dusty GPS units with a toothbrush to get all the sand out. And it's just a, <laughs> it's a lot of work. It means, you know, hiking across beaches, carrying a lot of equipment and stuff like that. It's it's a calling. But like I am very grateful for Oregon Sea Grant, which uh, sponsors my fellowship, which pays me a good living wage for that. I wish uh, all the guys at OSU had a similar excellent living wage. Here, mm. here. And then you had mentioned also your interest in science education. Is that still kind of the long-term plan? Or? Oh, absolutely. I uh, did not get into grad schools my first round of applications, and so I took a gap year where I served as an environmental educator with a nonprofit uh, in Massachusetts, and that's where I discovered that I absolutely love teaching. Uh, we would go in, we would do lesson plans in schools, we did field trips with the kiddos. Uh, my absolute favorite day in the world is when I come home and I smell of sweat, uh, bug spray, and sunscreen. Those are the good days. Field trips. Yes. Uh, out of the dunes, out of the beach. It was always a good time. Uh, yeah, my dream is, honestly, if I could travel the world and teach people about sea turtles and just get paid to do that for a living, I think that would be the ultimate dream. But anything that involves education and ecology, uh, marine ecology, things like that, I really love. Just like, you know, that look on people's faces when they learn something they didn't know about the ocean or it's like with tutoring and teaching, you know, that aha moment when people understand something for the first time or they think it's really cool. That's I don't know. I live for that. I, I, I second that uh, when I started teaching the light bulb moment, you can see a student's face get it and the facial expression of them getting it. And then like, oh, because X and Y, like, yeah, because of X and Y. Oh, priceless. Absolutely priceless. Mm. All right. So I think we'll move into some of our show's traditions to wrap up. Um, something we always ask is uh, what is your favorite thing about what you research? You know, you asked me this ahead of time and I forgot to think about it, but I'm going to have to go with the the little baby sea turtle hatchlings. I got to release one for the first time last winter and I like suddenly understood what it meant to have purpose in your life. <laughs> I really, you know, I like watched it like very clumsily, like waddle its way out into the water. And I was like, man, you're probably going to die before you even <laughs> get far out into the ocean. But it was just you really didn't tell that, though. <laughs> no, I didn't tell it that. Um, but it was a lovely feeling, feeling like I'm contributing. I don't know. It's a good feeling. Another tradition we have is we ask you for some advice. So what advice do you have for yourself in the past, other undergrads, uh, other graduate students uh, in your position? Well, for undergrads, I would say, yeah, you know, taking classes and getting good grades is great. But like the real experiences you're going to get at undergrad are going to be working in a lab or doing internships or like doing study abroad or, you know, applying and going to do a workshop, even if you have to take a couple weeks off in the middle of a term for it. That's the stuff that sets you apart. That's the stuff that helps you figure out what makes you take and what doesn't, you know, what's worth pursuing and what and what is absolutely not because you hate it. Um, definitely a gap year going straight into into grad school is 
is a lot. You deserve a break. You deserve to make some money. You deserve to try something out for a year and see if you like it or if you don't like it. I do not regret coming to grad school and I'm rather enjoying it a lot, but it's a lot of work. And if I wasn't getting something out of it, it would not be worth it. Um, as a grad student, I need to be better about saying no to things, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think most of us can empathize with. It's good to learn how to set boundaries and, and say no. And, you know, we're only paid for 19.6 hours per week, so don't feel like you have to work more than that. Well, thank you for saying yes to coming on tonight. It's been great to have you. Um, and then we're, we're going to go right into our last tradition, which is you picked a song. Do you, um, you want to say the name? of? I picked the first song you is it the Maracatu? Maracatu, yeah. Nice. So Maracatu is actually a traditional Brazilian form of music that involves a lot of percussion. I got to see some live when I was doing fieldwork on the island on one of my nights off. It's a really fun time. People just kind of going out jamming together. <laughs> okay. So here it is. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, enjoy listeners. Thank you. Join your union. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.